Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends, so thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to the new man beyond the macho jerk and the new age wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lemire. Is it dangerous to believe in God or something bigger than yourself? What do Mars colonization, cults, and the pursuit of heavenly salvation have in common? And why are so many of us feeling spiritually lost? Jamie Wheel is the co-author of Stealing Fire and the executive director of the Flow Genome Project. He's returned to discuss his latest book, Recapture the Rapture. And today, we talk about the world's crisis of meaning, why groups sometimes make us dumber, and trying to fill the God-shaped hole in our hearts. All right, you you get pretty bold here (laughs) in Recapture the Rapture. You say, we're going to learn how to revitalize our bodies, boost our creativity, rekindle our relationships, and answer once and for all the questions of why we are here and what do we do now. Easy. Easy stuff, really, <laughs> real simple, no problem, right? No doubt. Well, it seemed like the era of, you know, Ted talky, big thinky books is officially over and we actually need to get a little bit more descriptive and prescriptive. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm, I appreciate that. There's no shortage of things that are laying out the problems and, uh, and then just kind of leaving us on our own to deal with it. So from your perspective, Well, let me come back to one of the things that impacted me most as I was reading through the book was this story of you realizing that something was missing in your life. Can can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, we're just, you know, dirt poor students in Boulder and my, the the cheapest entertainment we had was to get high and go to the Boulder bookstore and get a bottomless cup of coffee, (laughs) you know, the hippie (laughs) speedball and then go browse the aisles. It was before Google, right? So like, that's what you did. You just kind of to see what was out there somewhere between the magazines and the, and the, and the old books, you know, you could pretty much get a good groove going and just stumble into um, neat new information. Mm -hmm. They used to always have public lectures in the upstairs part of the Boulder library. Right. And I remember wandering up there. I was like, great, more free entertainment. Like I'm in, and there was this, there was this rabbi up there and he was rapping and he was describing his story and it was Rabbi Zalman Shakhtar. And, and he, at the time, I think was teaching at Naropa, uh, which was Chogyam Trungpa's original um, kind of Buddhist college in Boulder. And, um, <clears throat> and he, he had been a dippy hippie, 
you know, like the, he was somehow, I think Alberta, Canada was actually one of the, you know, who to thunk it early hotbeds of LSD research in the fifties and sixties. Right. And so it kind of leaked out as, as it did everywhere. Right? It leaked out of, of the hospitals and the institutions. And he got whacked with the lysergic stick in like 1962. And he's like, okay, I'm all in on the communal countercultural experiment. But then as he's, as he's standing up and delivering this rap, he's like, he's like, but, you know, I went to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem and I was kind of inquiring. He, he had become initiated in the Sufi tradition. He'd become initiated in all these sort of world religions and spirituality. He had basically turned his back on Orthodox Judaism. He goes back to the Wailing Wall and he's kind of, you know, having a dialogue with God kind of thing. He's like, what should I do? What, what direction should I take? And he said, he said every time he would kind of like, you know, think a potential pathway through. Like maybe I get to be a Sufi mystic or maybe we should do the hippie commune thing. This voice would come back and go, but Zalman, you're a Jew. <laughs> and he, he kind of like, right? And he kept, he kept trying to dodge it. And, and then like an, enough times this kept happening. He's like, son of a bitch. I guess I am. And, and that... And that in conjunction with um, Ken Kesey, who had been one of my kind of idols, you know, like I had one of his quotes in my college yearbook and I'd read electric Kool-Aid acid test and one flew of the cuckoo's nest. And I was like, this dude's the man, you know, I was way more a West Coast Kesey prankster guy than I was a East Coast Ram Dass Leary guy, right? I was much more like, let's be psychedelic superheroes. Let's fucking go, you know, let's travel the American West and live large, right? Mm -hmm. And and tr like later in, in Kesey's life, his son, who was a wrestler like him, had been killed in a rollover accident of an RV on the way back from a wrestling match. Mm. And that profound grief had cracked Kesey open and he had returned to the, you know, the faith of his origin as an Oregon farm boy. And he had sort of refound Christianity. And between those two, I was like, whoa, what the hell? How is that possible? You've already gone down this road. How could you possibly return? Yeah, it's, it's, it's like Dylan getting Jesus in the late 70s. You're like, is this a sellout? Like, what the hell, right? And so I went home and I was sitting on our futon and I was just I probably listening to some Grateful Dead or something. And I was, I was like, and I just, I sort of just tears started streaming down my face because I'm like, I'm fucked. Like, I don't have a choice in this. Like, this is the faith I am steeped in. This is the idiom. These are the archetypes. And I can't get away from them no matter how hard I try. Like for you, it was Christianity. Well, yeah. I mean, it was, it was the archetype of the Christ. It was the Nazarene. It was more, it was closer to like a Robert Graves, you know, Frazier, Golden Bow. It was this kind of mystic European green man, Robin Hood, Nazarene, you know, sacrificial king, Tom Robbins and Jitterbug perfume, like that whole thing. Right. I could not get away from. And it felt for a moment, because I had studied undergrad and graduate, everything other than Western Europe and the US. I fucking hated it. <laughs> you know, it was like, it was like, show me Taoism, show me Buddhism, show me indigenous traditions, like anything but this Moloch death board, you right. know? And and to come back to it felt um, at, you know, and I, I just kind of realized I was like, well. You know, Buddhism, I thought was fascinating, but Buddha didn't have any of the pathos, the struggle and the suffering, the uncertainty. He just felt like, you know, I mean, I, I make a joke of this in the book, but he felt like kind of like the Roger Federer of enlightenment. Like you don't even you see call him a trust fund prince. That, that yeah. Got it right. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> and then beamed up to the mothership. He's like, peace out, folks. I need to mock the bow tree. You know, it's hard to relate to that story. It's super hard. You know, you're like, go for it, said Arthur. You're a badass. You know, you're like kind of the Brad Pitt of, you know, his era. And, <laughs> and then, you know, and Lao Tzu, the, you know, the sort of apocryphal sage of Taoism is just fully formed in all the stories. There's no path to how he got to woke. 
He's just chubby and happy and chilling. And, and the only thing to say is, if you're suffering, you're out of alignment with the Tao. If you're in alignment with the Tao, everything's, everything's roses. And so that was, again, inspirational for action sports, inspirational for music and celebration and all sorts of gooey, gooey, groovy things, but absolutely fucking useless to me as an angry young man, as an angst riddled existential, you know, cosmic orphan, like what the fuck, <laughs> you yeah. know? And, and then, you know, and obviously um, Islam as you know, as many people have noted, right, has relatively, you know, didn't go through a reformation, has relatively on the one hand in the mainstream and even in some of the fringe sects, a fairly medieval perspective. Muhammad was a decidedly historic figure, right? Militaristic, conquering, kicking ass, taking names. And then you kind of get this, you know, you get Hafez and you know, you, you get Rumi and you get folks like that who are the kind of spin-off mystics. And but again, nowhere in there could I quite locate my lived experience. Right. And and so what a and, and then then I kind of had this puzzling realization too, which is that the elements of let's just we'll just call it the nazarene i'll refer to the dude right distinct from orthodox christianity because that's just so problematic and, and burdened right so i kind of had all these weird injections and exposures but i was always a stranger in a strange land right i was never i was i was on the outside looking into those experiences never feeling that they were mine to to have and and then i realized i was like oh well the the notions of death rebirth the notions of struggle sacrifice and redemption right all of these really profound metaphors that just like went straight down the pipes and are like oh my god like that soothes my soul that speaks to my experience they were mystic christic right they had that sense of that sacrificial king kind of thing but they didn't come from christianity at all it was like you know everybody knows this one but i mean i remember uh watching that Oliver Stone movie, Natural Born Killers, right? With Woody Harrelson. And I think, who else is in that? Is that Brad Pitt as well? It's definitely uh, that Juliette Lewis. That's what it is. Juliette Lewis, yeah. Yeah, so torqued movie, but one of the, part of the soundtrack is that Leonard Cohen tune anthem. You know, ring the bells that still can ring, forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. It's where the light gets in. And I remember just getting goosebumps. I didn't even know who it was singing it. I'm like, what the hell was that? Yeah. You know, and he's a Zen Jew. And you're like, so wait, he's singing about, right, redemption and light through our suffering. Pema Chodron, right? You know, to, to be alive is to be continually thrown out of the nest. You know, it is, it is to die again and again. And you're like, okay. And she's Tibetan nun, you know? And then, you know, m most folks are familiar these days with like the Japanese concepts of wasabi and, and, and or wabi-sabi wabi and wasabi is a different thing. <laughs> we know wasabi, wabi, yeah. Wabi-sabi and kintsugi, right? The idea of like, when a vase breaks, you glue it together with golden glue and the unique imperfections make it that much more beautiful. And then I was like listening to NPR and there was this story of this Chinese family and they even have a concept called Chongzi, which is joy bathing, which is literally the idea that we can make ourselves healed and whole by experiencing joy and happiness and pleasure. So you're like, holy shit, like this is ubiquitous. This is a world tradition. And yet they all kind of speak to this thing of, of the irreducible intersection, right? Of grace and grit, right? To borrow Ken's term, right? Of, mm -hmm. of the agony and the ecstasy, right? Of like life is magic and tragic. 
and we're stuck at that intersection. And that is irreducible and unresolvable. And that is fundamentally the mystery of the human experience. And to make peace with that is to unlock, right, the peace that passeth all understanding. So you're like, oh, shit, that's a thing. And that's the part that's relatable, right? I'm not perfect. I'm not Siddhartha. I'm not Lao Tzu. I I can't grasp those stories, but I can grasp I'm I'm not perfect. I fall down. And can I get back up? Oh, yes, I can. I can get back up. And that's where we find ourselves. And that's part of a, that's a cultural thing. It's not just a personal thing. It's a cultural thing. We've been steeped in that and we're soaking in it. And then therefore to try and remove ourselves from that for the reasons of, hey, this isn't rational. This is batshit or this, I can't get behind this political, you know, powerhouse thing that's going on and the touchy priests and all that kind of stuff. But we've abandoned that part of ourselves and there's this God-shaped hole, as you said, and so how do we reclaim that without giving up a part of ourselves? I think that's the part that that's sticky when you look at Dylan going back or some of these other folks that go back and reclaim it. It seems absurd to go back. So what have they done and what have you done maybe to, to say, hey, I can transcend and include the best parts or what are you doing there? Yeah, well, I mean, for ages, I just sat on this because I couldn't solve it. I'm like, fuck me, man. Christianity has got such irredeemable branding issues. And I was like, 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 like, how do we, right? I mean, how do we do this? Like, do you call it? I've even, I literally played with that. I'm like, put an X, like X, like Xanity, like Zianity, like, like, well, I mean, it's a gross simplification, right? Obviously there's, there's profound, um, there's profound insights and beauty and contributions over the last 2000 years within the kind of broader container of, you know, quote unquote, Christianity. There's also been shit piles of conflict, hypocrisy, bloodshed, you know, all sorts of things. Oh yeah. So the question for me was, you know, you can do this infinite regress as to who was Jesus really. And if you kind of look at the landscape of interpretation, you're like, you know, some people say he was just a dude. Some people say he was a man who became enlightened. So kind of analogous to Siddhartha. Some will say he was the divine son of God all along, and he was kind of just play acting. Some people say he was 50-50, and that's what makes it such a gripping story, and he had to figure it out. Christopher Hitchens would say he was a total fucking fiction for superstitious goobs. Other comparative religious scholars would say, no, look, I mean, there's Mithras, there's, there's, all, these, there's all these other near and Middle Eastern solar mystery cults, and his story from the, from the virgin birth to the myth of Christ, Christmas with the manger and the wise men in the cave and the gifting, all these things have been told a thousand times. He's just a mashup of Middle Eastern mystery cults, right? It's just literally, you know, a pastiche. And you kind of figure, okay, well, um, which one of those is quote unquote really true? By and large, almost impossible for us to sort from now, but the meme of Jesus, right? That has persisted for 2000 years, has virally replicated and has rippled around the world in ways that few other sort of narratives in this category have. Right. And, and you can do the historical political. You can be like, oh, Emperor Constantine gave it the rubber stamp of the Roman Empire, European colonialism, guns, germs and steel. You can say, you know, there's a lot of really tactical, practical reasons why it spread as fast and far as it did. But on the other hand, it is a profoundly resonant story. And I think that just inquiring at the level of the Jesus meme, you know, of all possibilities, kind of like quantum, you know, <laughs> superposed waveform, like, which was it? What is it? Yeah, I think that that story is profoundly relevant without having to collapse into any particular doctrine or dogmas. And so when you're sitting on the couch there 
as a student and the tears are coming down your face, what are you yearning for? Because it's, it's not really about that history. There's something in that moment that's missing or you're longing. Yeah, what, it, what was that that you can speak to from that first person uh, point of view? I mean, to me, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of weird because as you ask that, I'm like, huh, I actually, I, I don't pray, right? I don't, um, I don't, def- like, I don't beseech, you know, or, or like, I, I don't feel like I have an I-thou relationship, right? Like that Martin Buber, beautiful kind of phrase of like me and you, and like, we're in this together and I, you're on my shoulder or you got my back or, you know, whatever. Um, I've remained not by any choice, but I, I'm just a lot more agnostic than that. But on the other hand, that his story, and I mean, even saying his doesn't even quite feel right. Like that's overly personified and kind of triggers, you know, the, oh, he's smuggling in a fucking, you know, preachy thing. It's like, nope. Um, it's, it's more to me, um, it's that notion of we're all cosmic orphans. Right. We, you know, and, and the Germans have a term for it. They call it Weltschmerz, which is literally like feeling the wound of the world. Right. We're all born the first time. And unless you subscribe to some form of like soul selection and your baby comes on purpose kind of thing, but more or less. Right. I mean, we are accidents of fuckery. You know, uh, uh, <laughs> two people got together and got it on at least once. And we happened. And we're pushed out into this world completely against our will from this beautiful amniotic sack of, you know, womb, warm and comfort. And we're like, what the fuck? This is cold. It's loud. It's bright. It's scary. We get, we hit adolescence. We're like, who am I? We hit early adulthood. You're like, how the hell do you pay rent and make food and do a job that doesn't suck your soul? And like, and what about all the suffering everywhere else in the world? And how is this thing even happening? And is this just fair, equitable, beautiful, good, and true? I don't fucking know. And yet there's this chance, right, through death, rebirth initiations, right, where we actually, for the first time in our lives, get to choose this lifetime. And if you think about most spirituality, most self-help, most you know, pop psych, all of it is about escaping this fucking thing. Whether it's learn and master the secret, whether it's psychedelic therapy, whether it's belonging to a community or, or, or you know, a, a practice, a faith practice, biohacking, you name it. They're all smuggled in utopian exit plans. I'm going to get out of this thing once and for all. Yes. Then, then everything will, you know, someday, you know, everything's going to be different when I paint my masterpiece. Right. And, and instead, if we have that chance to literally die and reborn, I mean, Goethe said it beautifully. He said, he said, he who does not know the secret die and become will remain forever a stranger on this earth. And I think that stranger part, that's the cosmic orphan. That's like, fuck, I didn't choose this. And this is weird and hard and scary. And you know, nature is red in tooth and claw and life is nasty, brutish and short. And I don't see the way through this maze. But the death rebirth experience, and we have this in all of our stories, right? I mean, this is why everybody watches Jimmy Stewart and A Wonderful Life at Christmas. It's also why we watch, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Those moments, it's Dorothy, right? Coming back home, having done her heroic journey and going, oh my God, there really is no place like home. But but you ranch hands, you fuckers who are like inbred, toothless, you know, you know, probably a little rapey kind of creepy dudes. You know, you were the tin man. You were the lion. You were the scarecrow. Now I understand your true essence. Now I understand my place in the scheme of things. And I'm all in. Yeah. That home, that sense of home that I belong here. But it's a ch- I love how you said I choose this. 
And so if we were born into that ideology, we wouldn't necessarily choose it. So maybe we're removed from it, divorced from it, but then we feel that ache of separation. Like the, the only place that I'm separate from everything else in the universe is this default mode network that says me, 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 not everything else. And that's a painful, achingly, achingly painful place to be separate from everything. So to come, I love this choice to, to come back home, to find that, but, to, but then to not lose ourselves again, to come back and own our authority, own our power, as you're talking about in this book, that we can come back to that place, find our home again, find our, our place of belonging our connection to everything, but still be ourselves. It's not either or. That's the threat is if I go back to this ideology or if I embrace this again, I'm going to lose who I am in the process. Is that what you're saying? Well, well, yeah. I mean, I think the beauty of it, right? I mean, the, the technical term for the person on the other side of that death rebirth initiation is anthropos. Right. And Harold Bloom at Yale has riffed on that. He's talked about that being like really profoundly part of the American tradition. He's like, it's heretical and it's hermetic, meaning it's kind of secretive or sealed, but it's absolutely in opposition to what the Vatican would have ever signed off on or what the Protestant church. I mean, America was founded by freaks and misfits, you know, so like get the, on the boat, baby. We're yeah, like, I mean, the, 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 the highly experiential, I mean, the first and second great awakenings, everything from, you know, the sixties counterculture to Burning Man has all been of a feather which is we reject orthodoxy, we reject institutional top-down control, we privilege um, direct experiential right, connection to source and the divine. And, and so that sense um, of what does it mean to actually be given the choice to choose the rest of our life with full volition is profound. With the advent of um, the Judeo-Christian alpha in the beginning was the word and omega at the end, right? There's a resolution to this whole thing that instantiated a form of linear time, time's arrow, right? And from that, every single story, more or less, right? Secular and sacred for the last three, 4,000 years has, has had that DNA baked into it, which is we started in a place of perfection, we fell from grace. That's the East of Eden kicked out of the garden thing. There is an inflection point in the future, which changes and transforms everything. And then it comes up roses. And many scholars have, you know, I think accurately pegged that communism, right? Was, was basically that identical story stripped of God, but following the exact same framework, right? We were, I mean, Yuval Harari did this in Sapiens, right? Like we were fine until the agrarian revolution, right? Um, communism was like, we were fine until the industrial revolution. Then capitalists took over, proletariat man is everywhere in chains, right? And then there's going to be the communist revolution and we're going to have a, a, pro, a, a communist utopia on the other side. And he was also, and at the time, Gray was writing in like 2008, he was talking about neoliberalism in the Middle East. He's like, even this is the same fucking thing. Topple the dictators, get rid of the baddies, Arab Spring, democracy and McDonald's for everyone. And, and it was like, whoops, that didn't quite happen. Right. And you now see blockchain and crypto and seasteading and psychedelic renaissance, pretty much everything going on today where people are still positing, hey, things are bad. I know they're bad. Here's why they're bad. Here's why we slipped from someplace that was groovy. And here's how we get to the happily ever after is profoundly truthy for us because we've heard every single iteration of this story for centuries. So it's back to kind of Colbert, you know, taking the piss out of George Bush at the White House press conference. Like it feels truthy to me and we feel it. And we're- This suckers. is the rapture ideologies that you yeah. talk about. We are suckers for that story, 
because the it, yes, some form, just tell me the out. And, and that I think is actually pathological at this point, because no matter how you slice and dice it, they're all one percenter solutions. So whether it's, you know, Wahhabi, you know, jihadis, right? Like the idea of, of Islam and, and ISIS and those kind of things, whether it's Christian Zionists, you know, arming Israel to the teeth to accelerate us to the final battle of, of, of Armageddon, that's problematic. But so are, so are space colonies, so is uploading our consciousness to computers, some techno-utopian raptures are following the same pattern. Not everybody all, gets on the bus. Not everybody gets a ticket to ride. And the moment you actually think that through beyond the sugar high of the utopian promise, right? You're like, wait a second. Okay. Let's think about operationalizing this, that there's 8 billion of us. And there's been in none of these stories, is there room for more than, you know, 500 million, you know, figuring this out like at max, max, right? So you're like, okay, so these are all pathological to the extreme. And that's kind of the premise of the book, which is how do we recapture the rapture? How do we recapture the story of how this all goes down, right? How do we reclaim our, our passionate intensity, our lowercase rapture, right? Our bliss, our belonging, our connection, our courage, right? How do we reclaim that so that we can actually contribute our voices to architecting a future that works for all of us? Okay, let's slow down for a second because I want to tie this stuff together, which is we're steeped in these rapture ideologies. We've been, we've been eating them and drinking them and, and watching them our entire lives, right? That there's, there's there, you even show the arc, uh, you know, the different arcs in, in, in the book that, that we just love this story. And we've watched it over and over again. And now we're, we've got an opportunity to live it. They're scary, right? The end is coming and there's a way out. And whether it is success that most people are chasing, or it's going to be living on Mars, or it's going to be living in your own silo, or it's going to be living in the promised land, whatever that is, we can buy into these stories that this is my way, this is where I'm going to finally be okay, whatever that utopian vision can be, okay? And in, we might be giving up our form of religion or the community that we grew up in because it bought into one and it didn't make sense to us or it had a lot of baggage, but we might be trading it for another one. Yes. Okay. And then there's, you're saying these are, these are pathological we, and we want to watch out for this. So the book is essentially saying, Hey, we want to, we want to be able to identify these pathological rapture ideologies and then come back to our own sense of self to be, to still be able to not, and I love this part because that's, this is where the tendency for me is to get really individualized because I've just watched community after community, just recreate more shit and turn into cults, turn into things like, man, this started out. It was like fight club. This is so cool. And then, Oh no, you're blowing up buildings. This is, this is not good. You know? So it's like, it's, it's just watching the, the, the path or the, the pattern recreate itself as we get into this mindset, and we stop thinking for ourselves. This book is a blueprint. Hey, here's, here's, here's how to come back together, but still think for yourself, still, still think for yourself. And also, reconnect with those places where we feel like we've disconnected and, and harness those for ourselves, but then also be able to move forward instead of making it the either or. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. And, and to your point, right. About you've been a part of communities, they seem vibrant and exciting and enthusiastic. And then they somehow end up in the ditch in the same, on the same corner, no skid marks, you know, you're like, what the hell? <laughs> so, so, I mean, my assumption there is, is actually that it's a feature, not a bug of tribal primates. 
So rather than going, oh, that indicates a wrongness or that indicates some clap, you're like, no, 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 that is actually, that's, the, that's physics. So we have to actually learn to work with the physics better. This is what happens when we join a, a community that's based around these ideologies. It's, we can just expect this to happen. Basically, the way I set up in the book is we're in a meaning crisis, right? We, we've lost a sense of shared, coherent purpose and direction and even understanding of like base reality, right? We're all just splintered and factionalized. And that happened because traditional religion, meaning 1.0, has collapsed. There's been the rise of the nuns, the, the spiritual but not religious. I don't identify with a specific denomination, which is now the largest and fastest growing segment in all of America for the first time in history. Nuns being N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. Yeah. yeah. So that was meaning 1.0. And then in the last, you know, you could definitely say post-Berlin Wall, post-9-11, post-08 crash, now into COVID, populism, all these things. We've also seen this crash of meaning 2.0, which had been actually kind of the religion of modern liberalism. So the enlightenment experiments, civil rights, democracy, markets, all of those kind of things. And that, and basically meaning 1.0, like organized religion offered salvation, but at the cost of exclusion. If you believed you were saved and if you didn't, you, you burned in hell or were just outcast. Re meaning 2.0, right? The enlightenment experiment of kind of modern civil society and democracies promised inclusion for everybody, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, regardless of race, color, or creed, right? But at the cost of salvation, right? God is dead. Mm -hmm. And, and we've seen both of those collapse lately. So e even the modern thing, right, which, you know, Sam, Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and, and, and those guys had said, you know, the new atheists, they had said, oh, you know, the time for superstitious religion is done. Everybody's going to be moving into modernity. And that hasn't quite happened. So we've had this sucking vacuum. We're still wanting to come home. We're still wanting to, all the, all the things that we talked about. Yeah. So we end up with a, you know, the folks who are left in the middle with no place to go are getting sucked to the extremes. So you get a doubling down on religion in the form of fundamentalism. And you also end up in fight club, right? We're the middle children of history, man. And our great revolution is a spiritual revolution, right? You get sucked into nihilism and that's the diseases of despair, addiction, suicide, right? I mean, suicide now outpaces all world wars and all natural disasters combined as far as the number of lives it takes each year. And so you're like, holy shit, that's crazy and tragic. So, so that's the big, that's the meaning crisis, meaning 1.0, organized religion, meaning 2.0, modernism, what do we do to create meaning 3.0? And so you can make the case that we need to create ethical cultures that instead of requiring an individual to submit to anything, how do we actually use it to boost sovereignty? So I am more in my seat. I'm more in my power. I'm more in my choices. And at the same time, allow for the profound level up of collective coherence, community, and creativity. And we haven't really done that very well up till now. Because when we get boundary dissolving, inhibition lowering, group flow or communitas, there's almost always somebody bent that tries to grab the power of that and weaponize it. Is there something that happens to us too when we get into a group where we, I always feel like the IQ goes down about 40 points once I'm in a group and there's this sense of, this is what we're doing and this is where we're going. And I just stop thinking for myself. Is that... I, what's been studied around that aspect? I understand that there's somebody up there. It's like, man, I can, this can be mine. 
But then there's something else that was just like, great, I don't have to think anymore. I can just go with the flow. There's that aspect of like, here, you go. You, you decide what we have for lunch kind of thing. I don't want to be burdened by that. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, actually, there's a couple of totally different stories that I think, you know, hopefully if you, if you can follow them, they'll, they'll, they'll unlock some, some good insights, which is the first one that comes to mind. Um, and I just lived this last week <laughs> doing a ski mountaineering trip. Um, but our buddy, uh, Ian McCannon, who was a PhD uh, you know, data scientist uh, at the University of Utah and a Knowles instructor. So he was a badass outdoor guide avalanche forecast, all these kind of things. And he studied the huge data set of avalanche accidents in North America. And what he found was, he goes, this is really weird. Basically, the more avalanche training you have, the more likely you are to get killed by an avalanche. And he's like, that's weird. And so what he realized is he goes, he goes, because we never actually deal with reality. We're always taking shortcuts, which he calls, you know, which people know as heuristics. They're basically rules of thumb that let me to say, if this thing looks like that thing, I'll do the other thing because that worked last time. Right. That's basically how we do it. Right? Huh. We're late. We're lazy prediction machines. Right. And and his insights were, you know, there was number one, there was expertise. So basically there's a classic example of like nine top ranked avalanche forecasters and ski patrollers all getting killed at the bottom of a slope because everybody there assumed everybody else there was also super smart and expert and expert. And then you'd be the weenie if you asked the question. Right. And, and so everybody just kind of overrode their own concerns or their own thought process to just defer to this collective group that actually wasn't a collective group. Everybody just assumed everybody else had it wired and then and, and then there's also scarcity like oh there's powder turns i, I mean and, and you know and if i don't get them someone else will there's there's prior evidence look somebody else made turns down that so it must be safe there's all these things and his data analysis completely turned upside down how people train for avalanche and snow safety right now and that's wow. this happened to me last week and we were in crested butte and, and some friends in town were like, hey, you want to go ski that backcountry classic line? And I'm like, yes, I'm all in. And I thought I was going with one of the legends of Crested Butte, who's won all these ski mountaineering races, total pro. Turns out he wasn't home. The next morning I go with a friend and her husband. They turns out they hadn't read the Avalanche reports. They had only just taken their level one cert. They were, they were locals that knew all the familiarity. They knew all the things. Yeah, we do this every spring, blah, blah, blah. But they hadn't read the report, which said things were kind of shady today. And I was like, oh fuck, I am finding myself against all better knowledge, sucked into a groupthink situation that could kill me. I don't want to be the one to be the weenie. Yes. And, but I kind of had to, only because of Ian's research, I was like, I'm going to make sure I take responsibility for myself. I'm going to look at the weather report the night before. I'm going to ask these questions. I'm going to say, I think we should ski over here. Like if I hadn't had that data and those conclusions, like right in the top of mind and my, the rest of my family going, are you sure dad? Like more people have died this year than in the last century in Colorado. Don't do that. And I'm like, no, I'm gonna. But then I had to kick it in. I had to really, uh, but it was, I was like, holy shit, what a crazy slippery slope it is to yes, succumb yes. to groupthink and to take risks that you would never in a month of Sundays rationally or reasonably take just to go along, to get along and or to get yours. Because if there's something fun to do, right, that's another, that we've sort of become lizard brain fuck monkeys. You know, we're just like, just push the button, push the button. I like to feel good. Yeah. So for Meaning 3.0, we're going to have to animate this. We're going to have to practice this, among other things that you talk about in the book. But this is one of those things in order for it to happen. We've got to be able to own that, that authority. For, for anyone who these days is kind of torn, like just feels like guardrail to guardrail between, wait, I thought I was kind of like pursuing hashtag best life. 
you know, that kind of notion of coming alive, like how do I expand my possibilities and opportunities for myself, for all of us, versus the staying alive arc of like, oh shit, quarantine, ice caps, ecological crisis, et cetera. And, and then that's feeling super duper schizophrenic right now. And sometimes overwhelming of like, which storyline am I on? Just that the, the notion of that courage is actually hardwired into us at our deepest level of being. And, and our buddy, Andrew Huberman at Stanford, he's a neuroscientist there, and he just published a study in Nature, which literally showed that when they stimulate a mouse's brain in a very specific region, it prompts courageous behavior against mortal threat, like literally like birds of prey, and completely overrides their normal desire to run and hide. And that when given a choice, they choose it over food or sex, and so do humans. Yeah, you wrote, would we'd rather be brave than get laid? I loved that line. Exactly. So you're like, oh, and, and, and it's, you know, poetry you couldn't write, you, know, you couldn't make up that the, the Latin term for that zone, the region of our brain is the nucleus reunions, which is literally the seed of our reunion. The seed of how we come together is through our courage. So that's it. It's, it, it's, it's leave space for grace. Leave space for grace. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Uh, the book is Recapture the Rapture. Jamie Wheel, thank you so much for doing this work, man. Great to jam with you, Chip. If these interviews are helping you, please leave a positive review on whatever podcast app you use so that others can discover the show more easily.